This is Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but please enjoy this encore broadcast from August 23rd, 2022. Several sources said the former president, Donald Trump, personally reviewed the boxes in deciding what to return. And that means he also decided what not to return. So um, that is incredibly damning. Yes. Yes, it is. But is it espionage as defined by the Espionage Act? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites, or at least... Some of them blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. I hope you agree. Thank you very much for joining us today for another delicious edition of the Bradcast. Glad to have you here. You know, that was, uh, who was that, Andrew Weissman at the yes, top of it the, was. Uh, formerly of the Robert Mueller investigation, a yep. longtime DOJ um, uh, prosecutor, investigator, uh, talking about the number of classified documents that we now know, at least according to reporting by the New York Times on Monday night. How many classified documents, uh, documents marked as classified, were actually stolen by the president, former president uh, of the United States, from the White House when he left office? 300 of them. Something like 700 pages in total. So that's a lot. That is a lot. And I just want to make clear that because, you know, Trump has been trying to use this idea that, oh, they're uh, I declassified them automatically when I left, uh, whenever I took them out of the White House, whatever his ridiculous excuse is that nobody can actually nobody at least to date has actually backed up with evidence that he actually did that even if every single one of those 300 documents marked classified had been declassified by Donald Trump guess how many uh, of those documents would still have been illegal to take from the White House all of them every single one of them correct 
Lock him up. But maybe I'm getting <laughs> ahead of myself here. Uh, coming up momentarily, I'm very excited to speak with him. Uh, the lead attorney for national security whistleblower Edward Snowden. That would be the ACLU's Ben Wisner will be here. Not to discuss Snowden per se, though I suspect he'll come up as, as part of the conversation, but rather to discuss the Espionage Act of 1917. That is one of several criminal federal statutes that the DOJ is now investigating our disgraced former president for, according to the warrant documents that have so far been unsealed in the FBI's search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago compound. We will talk about the many problems with that statute, the Espionage Act, which many civil libertarians have long argued uh, to be overly broad and often misapplied to journalists and whistleblowers as opposed to actual uh, espionagers, spies selling secrets. Yeah, it turns <laughs> out that the reality of the Espionage Act is a lot more complicated and nuanced. And we will talk about whether it does or does not properly apply in this case to Donald Trump, given the, yes, hundreds of highly classified national security documents that we now know he stole from the White House upon leaving office. And that, that, by the way, that uh, delightful voice you heard was Desi Doyen. Oh, yes. Hi. <laughs> Just wanted to mention that. Uh, <laughs> very you. quickly, first, however, before we get to uh, Ben Wisner, uh, since we covered this when it was first announced a week or so ago, uh, I want to uh, put a uh, close the loop on this story. A decisive statewide vote in favor of abortion rights in traditionally conservative Kansas was confirmed with a partial hand count with fewer than 100 votes changing after the last county reported its results on Sunday out of Kansas. After election workers took a look at 556,000 ballots, the margin of rejection of that state constitutional amendment, which would have allowed Republicans in the state to ban abortion, well, the margin of the loss did narrow by 63 votes. So if you're keeping track at home, instead of failing by 165,389 votes, the recount showed the amendment actually failed by 165,326 votes. So it got a little closer after uh, that hand count in nine of the state's largest counties. There are 105 counties in all in Kansas. The count came at the request of Melissa Leavitt, who uh, has pushed for tighter election laws, restrictions on voting, in fact. And she offered vague claims about fraud during the uh, primary election earlier um, in August when uh, when this uh, uh, ballot measure was on the ballot to change the Constitution. But no such evidence of fraud was found. She paid $119,000 towards the cost of this recount. She combined money from her credit cards to do it uh, with an online fundraiser and support from a longtime Wichita anti-abortion activist. A no vote in the referendum signaled the desire to keep existing abortion protections. And a yes vote was to allow the legislature to restrict abortion entirely if they wanted to. After the recounts, no votes lost, 87 votes. The yes votes gained six votes. 
Eight of the counties reported their results by the state's Saturday deadline. Sedgwick County delayed the release of its final count until Sunday uh, because apparently some of the ballots were not separated into the correct precincts during the initial uh, recount and had to be resorted on Saturday. The uh, spokesman there said the number of votes cast overall did not change uh, thanks to that resorting. A larger than number expected uh, number of voters turned out on August 2 to reject that ballot measure, which failed by 18 percentage points, or about 165,000 votes statewide. Republican Secretary of State Scott Schwab Said, quote, the results of this unprecedented recount of more than half the ballots cast in the 2022 Kansas primary uh, with less than two one hundredths of a percent difference in the county canvases and the recount process proves once and for all there is no systemic election fraud in our state's election process. Well, uh, Secretary of State uh, Scott Schwab may be overstating it a little (laughs) bit there. Uh, It does, however, help to prove that there was no systemic election fraud in that particular ballot initiative in those particular counties that were hand counted, all but one of which had rejected the amendment in the uh, state's primary in early August. Schwab continued, quote, Kansans should be confident that these results put to rest the unfounded claims of election fraud in our state and know that our elections are secure and that their vote counted. Well, in fact, I hope it does give more confidence in the system to Kansas voters, at least in this case. And I actually hope it helps many folks On the left, who are too often these days just outraged by anyone suggesting that an election result could ever possibly be inaccurate, whether through manipulation or misprogramming of uh, computer tally systems or even just simple human error. Uh, I hope it helps some of those folks, some of those Democrats to understand that a hand count of Paper, hand-marked paper ballots when properly done and, importantly, paid for by those seeking the count, doing it legally instead of sneaking into the middle, into a, a county headquarters in the middle of the night and making unlawful copies of voting system software, but doing it all legally, paying for it if the challengers uh, wish to have such a count, that this actually helps everyone, everyone regain some confidence in the system, which so many on the right have been, frankly, blatantly lying about for so long, led by their former president. But but even for years prior to that, you know, by all sorts of Republicans claiming fraud with absolutely no evidence to back up their claims. So a hand count in this case, a partial hand count can actually help to calm those concerns down a bit at least on an election-by-election basis. You don't have to fight so hard, you know, against people, even if they have no reason to be suspicious of an election. But if they are suspicious, that's their right to be suspicious, and they deserve to know 
if their elections were counted accurately. Yeah, you don't build the public confidence by telling people, shut up, there's nothing here, you don't <laughs> right. get to look. I mean, there is, I think this demonstrates in Kansas that there is a right way to do it that is nonpartisan and professionally run by people who know how to do it in a way that is both transparent and verifiable. And listen, it is not a disaster when people want to, uh, you know, have a hand count of ballots if they're right. willing to go through the legal process to do it. You know, and for years there have been, you know, various questions that Democrats have had about uh, elections that they have lost by either slim margins or that the, the pre-election polls, uh, uh, you know, showed that they should have won. And yet the Democrats were then afraid to ask for a hand right. count because, oh, they'll look like sore losers and conspiracy theorists. Right. Just ask for the damn recount. Yeah, that's I mean, that's that's a bunch of BS that has been perpetuated by Republicans who then attack Democrats for even daring to consider the idea when Republicans do not apply the same standard to themselves. Being, so if the Democrats do it, they're sore losers. Right. But when Republicans do it, oh, you know, it's just they're transparency heroes of democracy. Yes. Right. So it's best to, you know, approach this from a nonpartisan professional way so that everybody has that opportunity. It is transparency and it is oversight, oversight by the public that will save somehow, maybe, I hope, democracy. Uh, there were also two other recounts in Kansas. Uh, I call them counts because when they were tallied originally on computers, they were either tallied correctly or incorrectly. Nobody actually knows until human beings actually bother to count them. Anyway, those two other counts also affirmed the results of Republican contests for both state treasurer and a state house district. And guess what? Nobody died in the bargain. Okay. <sighs> In the meantime, we are nearing the end of the primary season. Nearing it. We're not there yet, but we're nearing it uh, in advance of the critical midterm elections on November 8. I hope you have a uh, voting plan in mind. On Tuesday, voters in two big states, Florida and New York, rang in on some big primary elections in those two states, both of which where a gerrymandering is having a big effect on the congressional races. And where, for example, Florida governor and man in a hurry to become president, uh, Ron DeSantis, will learn who his Democratic opponent will be this fall. Meanwhile, in New York, thanks to redistricting, there are some incumbent versus incumbent battles, such as a big one between Congressman Jerry Nadler and Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney in New York, both longtime powerful Democrats in Congress. They are facing off. Uh, that is, of course, thanks to the mess of New York's redistricting this year, which actually delayed these primaries as they were sorted out by the courts. Uh, only one of those two members of Congress will survive to run this fall. Also in Oklahoma on Tuesday, a primary runoff to fill the seat being vacated by one of Desi Doyen's very favorite <laughs> U.S. senators. That would be James Mountain Inhofe which is actually his middle name, Yes, is Mountain. Why do you like him so much again? <laughs> I like him so much in the opposite way of not actually <laughs> liking him, uh, because Senator James Inhofe is, the, uh, is one of the chief climate science deniers who has, over his entire career in the Senate, helped to destroy and dismantle any kind of environmental pollution or climate policy 
any way, every way he possibly can. And he famously brought a snowball onto the Senate floor so he could say, look, see, it still snows. Disproved climate change right there. Yes. Uh, Yes. And of course, he is also with leading the denialist movement for so many years. uh, I would say uh, not responsible, but should be held accountable for so many extreme weather disasters we are now seeing in state after state after state. Today, it's Desi's home state of uh, of Texas uh, facing some incredibly extreme weather. We will get to that mm-hmm. in our Green News report a little bit later on today. In the meantime, by the way, I'm happy to report, at least so far, I haven't heard of any major problems for voters or voting systems uh, on Election Day in either of those three states. But sometimes those come later. Uh, We will have uh, noteworthy results and or problem reports if they arise on our next broadcast. But first, let's take a quick break here. And speaking of crimes in Florida, sort of, um, (laughs) Donald Trump is being investigated for, among many things, violating the Espionage Act of 1917 for having stolen highly classified documents from the White House. But is that law often misused in recent years against bona fide national security whistleblowers? Is it being appropriately applied, at least in this case, against the disgraced former president? The ACLU's Ben Wisner, Edward Snowden's attorney, joins us next to help us figure all of that out and more. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. Listen. Want to know a secret? Yes, yes, I do. Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, whoa. Well, I can't make that promise, but I do want to know a secret because I am a journalist, but I also don't want to be charged with espionage if I tell someone about it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The initial batch of documents retrieved by the National Archives from former President Donald J. Trump back in January of this year, a year after he'd been out of office, included more than 150 documents marked as classified, a number that ignited intense concern at the Justice Department and helped trigger the criminal investigation that eventually led FBI agents to swoop into Trump's Mar-a-Lago seeking to recover more. And they did, including some marked with some of the highest classification levels, including TSSCI or Top Secret Sensitive Compartmented Information, which Trump had failed to return despite months of requests from the National Archives and the Department of Justice and a subpoena and a personal visit by the DOJ's top counter espionage officer and It included a signed letter from a Trump attorney claiming there were no more classified records or other presidential records at Mar-a-Lago. That was not true. 
As the New York Times reported on Monday night, in total, the government has now recovered more than 300 documents with classified markings from Mr. Trump since he left office. That first batch of documents returned in January. Another set provided by Trump's aides to the Justice Department in June and the material seized by the FBI in that recent search. Now, by way of comparison, you'll recall um, the months, the years, actually, of lock her up chants from Trump and his supporters uh, in the run up to the 2016 election, calling on Hillary Clinton to be jailed for legally using a private email server while secretary of state, which included some records marked as classified. While Donald Trump held at least 300 such documents for over a year, according to The Times, on purpose, multiple probes of Clinton's emails found just three, none of which were sent by the former Secretary of State, but received in various email chains from others. The previously unreported volume of sensitive material found in the former president's possession in January helps explain why the Justice Department moved so urgently to hunt down any further classified materials he might have had. The specific nature of the sensitive material that Trump took from the White House remains unclear, the Times notes, but the 15 boxes Trump uh, turned over to the archives in January, nearly a year after he left office, included documents from the CIA, the National Security Agency, and the FBI, spanning a variety of topics of national security interest, according to a person briefed on the matter. Moreover, the Times reports Mr. Trump went through the boxes himself in late 2021 before turning them over that, according to multiple people, briefed on the efforts. The highly sensitive nature of some of the material in the boxes prompted National Archives officials to refer the matter to the Justice Department for criminal investigation which within months had convened a grand jury investigation. Aides to Mr. Trump turned over a few dozen additional sensitive documents during a visit to Mar-a-Lago by Justice Department officials in early June. At the conclusion of the search in August, officials left with 26 boxes, including 11 sets of material marked as classified, secret, top secret, and top secret sensitive compartmented information. The Justice Department probe is continuing, suggesting that officials are not certain whether they have even recovered all of the presidential records that Mr. Trump took with him from the White House. Trump's allies, of course, insist that the president had a, quote, standing order to declassify material that left the Oval Office for the White House residents. But even if true, and there is, to date, no evidence to back up that claim with at least 18 top Trump administration officials, from chiefs of staff to intelligence uh, chiefs, telling CNN they knew nothing about any such order. Uh, the records that Trump stole from the White House are still unlawful to be in his possession under the Presidential Records Act and several other statutes that prevent the theft and or concealment and or destruction of government documents and White House records that, after the Times reports, national, the National Archives officials spent much of 2021 trying to quietly get back the material they learned that he had illegally left office with. 
At the end of the week, following the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago, the federal magistrate judge that approved the warrant, finding probable cause that Trump may have violated at least three federal statutes, agreed to unseal it. The uh, warrant included references to 18 U.S. Code Sections 2071, which covers unlawful removal of government uh, government records, 1519, which covers the destruction or concealing of documents in order to obstruct federal law enforcement, and 793, better known as the Espionage Act, covering the unlawful retention of defense-related information that, if released, could harm the U.S., or aid a foreign adversary. We discussed each of those sections of the federal criminal code with national security journalist Marcy Wheeler on the show last week. But today, I want to focus specifically on the Espionage Act, since it has raised really the most eyebrows, appropriately or otherwise, following the search at Mar-a-Lago, perhaps because it sounds... The sexiest it was, after all, used as the basis for the execution of convicted spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg in 1953. They were charged under the act or because the more than 100 year old law has been at the center of so much controversy over the years. It is certainly playing a key part in the DOJ's criminal probe of Trump and his theft of documents. The recently unsealed cover sheet for the Mar-a-Lago search warrant described, quote, the basis for the search to be, quote, evidence of a crime, as well as, quote, contraband fruits of a crime or other items illegally possessed. It also cited those three criminal federal statutes related to, quote, obstruction of federal investigation, concealment or removal of government records and willful retention of national defense information. That in reference, again, to the Espionage Act, the sprawling, many argue overly broad, often vague and even antiquated statute, which bars the theft and or unlawful sharing of not classified documents, but what was described back in 1917 when the law was written as national defense information. The words that the FBI and DOJ conspicuously used in Trump's search warrant. Even if, as Trump and his supporters argue, the disgraced former president had declassified the hundreds of highly classified records in question, the crimes that he is being investigated for do not turn on whether those documents were classified or not. The Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University has helped lead the fight for rights of journalists and whistleblowers over the years, many of whom have been charged under the Espionage Act. Last week, the Institute's executive director, Jamil Jaffer, discussed the FBI's use of the Espionage Act of 1917 following the search at Mar-a-Lago in an op-ed at Politico. Writing, quote, the revelation that the Justice Department is investigating former President Donald Trump for violations of the Espionage Act has provoked a new wave of criticism of that century old law, with some calling on Congress to narrow the law. And at least one senator, in this case, Kentucky's Rand Paul, declaring that the law should be repealed altogether. Jaffer writes, there are, in fact, good reasons to criticize the Espionage Act, a law that has cast a dark shadow over free speech and press freedom in this country since its passage and compelling reasons why Congress should overhaul it. 
but that the law is being used against Trump, that is not one of them, he writes. Joining me now to discuss both the good reasons to overhaul the Espionage Act and, as Jaffer argues, how its use against Trump is is not one of them is Ben Wisner, the director of the American Civil Liberties Union's Speech, Privacy and Technology Project, where he works at the intersection of civil liberties and national security. He may be best known for being the lead attorney for exiled national security whistleblower still living in exile in Russia, Edward Snowden. Ben Wisner, thank you very much for joining us today on the broadcast, sir. It's my pleasure, Brad. Thanks for inviting me. So it seems like the uh, 100-year-old Espionage Act, signed into law by Woodrow Wilson, for crying out loud, has come up time and again in recent decades, usually in a way uh, that is criticized by civil libertarians like yourself for being overly broad or misused against actual whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning who released classified documents revealing war crimes by the U.S. military, or Reality Winner, who released uh, one classified document revealing Russia's 2016 breaching of uh, U.S. voter registration systems. Before we discuss whether the act is or isn't appropriately being used against the former president, uh, Ben Wisner, what have been your biggest concerns about its use or misuse uh, of, of the Espionage Act over the years? Well, as you said in your lead-in, this law goes back 100 years, and in fact, the abuses of the Espionage Act at the outset really had something to do with the formation of the American Civil Liberties Union in 1920. Hmm. Uh, it was used by Woodrow Wilson's administration to go after pacifists and anti-war activists, labor activists. Eugene Debs was prosecuted and imprisoned under the Espionage Act. Mm -hmm. So in its early years, it really is associated um, with all of the excesses of the first Red Scare and the crackdown on dissent uh, and, uh, and, and immigrants and other radicals. Mm -hmm. uh, in its modern history, the core critique of the Espionage Act uh, has been that it doesn't distinguish between selling the country's secrets to a foreign adversary for personal gain and sharing those same secrets with respected journalists in the public interest. And so... In the Snowden case, you have somebody who shared information with news organizations, the Washington Post, the Guardian at the time. Mm -hmm. Those news organizations won the highest awards in journalism, the public interest prize, uh, Pulitzer Prize. Mm -hmm. uh, and Snowden is charged under the Espionage Act, a strict liability offense. Uh, he's not able to argue uh, if he's brought to court under this law that he was acting in the public interest, that in fact the law changed as a result of his actions. All of that would be irrelevant and admissible under an Espionage Act prosecution. All the government has to show, as you said in your lead-in, uh, is that he shared national defense information with someone who was not authorized to receive it. And it makes no difference if it was the Chinese military or three-time Pulitzer Prize winner Barton Gelman um, mm -hmm. of the Washington Post. Um, uh, the Espionage Act is also at the center of the... Uh, criminal case against Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. This is the first time in the history of the Espionage Act that it's being used uh, to go after not a source, not someone who provided information to the press, but someone simply for publishing uh, that information, which will threaten lots of national security investigative journalism, because almost every day when we open the nation's leading newspaper, mm -hmm. we are reading classified information in those pages, meaning somebody uh, violated at least the letter of the Espionage Act. Uh, and so that, that has been the main reason why mm -hmm. journalists, 
civil society organizations, activists have been concerned about the broad reach of this law. And I want to underscore just a couple of points you made there. You, you referenced uh, Eugene Debs, that it was used against him. Uh, and it, it should be noted that it was used against him. He went to jail for decades, and he ran for president from jail. I'm just t- tossing that out there uh, right now for no particular reason, Ben. Um, you, you also note that, uh, that Edward Snowden, for example, or anyone else charged under the Espionage Act, they're unable to argue, in other words, that, oh, I had good reason to uh, release these documents, uh, you know, because in, in Snowden's case, uh, you know, maybe it showed war crimes or, or, or whatever it was. They're not allowed under the law to present a defense, essentially? That is essentially the way the courts have interpreted the Espionage Act during prosecution. The first person ever prosecuted under the Espionage Act for leaks to the press in the public interest, rather than trying to provide secrets to a foreign enemy, mm-hmm. uh, was, of course, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg mm-hmm. in 1971. And during his trial, um, his lawyer put him on the stand and said, Mr. Ellsberg, why did you think it was so important to provide these documents to Neil Sheehan at the New York Times? And the prosecution said, objection, and the judge said, sustained. Uh, And this has Mm. really been the rule since then, that um, there is no so-called public interest defense. The fact that all three branches of government changed law and practice in response to the Snowden revelation, Uh, that Attorney General Eric Holder said that it actually served the public interest, Mm -hmm. Uh, that Barack Obama said our country is stronger um, as a result of this debate. None of that would be heard by a jury. Uh, if Snowden were brought to trial under the Espionage Act, it would essentially be a sentencing, not a trial, because he has already admitted that he is the one who provided this information uh, to those journalists. That's mm-hmm. the only thing that the government would need to show in order to secure a conviction and long sentence under the Espionage Act. Has that never... I mean, it just... Okay, so it's a poorly written law, to say the least, that doesn't make any distinction between a bona fide whistleblower or a journalist and someone who's actually trying to trying to harm the country. But this notion that you can't defend oneself against that, surely that has gone to the Supreme Court. Surely that element alone would be a violation of of the First Amendment that you're not able to speak up in your own defense, essentially. No. I think there are strong First Amendment arguments that the law has been applied too broadly and too punitively. The Supreme Court has not heard a case uh, construing the Espionage Act uh, in the modern era when it started being used this way. Uh, You know, I should say, again, 1971 was the first time that it was used to go after a journalistic source. Mm -hmm. 1985 was the first time that someone was actually convicted under the Espionage Act for providing information to the press. Uh, and so it really is, and we talk about this war on whistleblowers over the last couple of decades, but it's still we're talking about a number of cases that can almost be counted on two hands. Uh, and no, the Supreme Court has not yet weighed in on the scope or limits um, of the Espionage Act and whether uh, uh, essentially mm-hmm. um, someone should be allowed under the Constitution to argue justification to a jury. Which is amazing that that has never actually been tested. Now, if someone sends me, as a journalist, uh, some classified national security documents, uh, information shows up in my my P.O. box or something, I had nothing to do with taking it uh, or, or stealing it. I just received it and published it. Can I be charged under the Espionage Act for doing so? You know, it's not a simple answer until 
you know, three years ago, I would have said absolutely not. Uh, the law has never been applied in that way to someone who simply received it and published it, which happens all the time in journalism. Uh-huh. Um, the WikiLeaks Assange case is the first time that the government has advanced that theory. Um, the Obama administration had, in fact, convened a criminal grand jury to investigate WikiLeaks, but at the end of the day, reportedly, Attorney General Holder said, we can't do this because of the New York Times problem. There's no way that we can prosecute Assange without creating a precedent that can be used against the New York Times, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which essentially has set up the same kind of submission system on its, the front of its webpage as WikiLeaks has. It uses a system called SecureDrop that, in fact, solicits government insiders to, to submit classified information mm-hmm. without leaving much of a trace. Um, the, the Trump administration and its attorney generals uh, took a different view here. Now, I think they would still say that there would be a difference between Assange, someone who held himself out as uh, an enemy of the U.S. empire, mm-hmm. um, who, who has not hidden um, his disdain for the country, uh, you know, they, they would argue, and, and took perhaps a more active role, they would argue, mm-hmm. um, in, in cajoling his source than if you were simply a passive recipient. Mm-hmm. But I should say, on the face of the Espionage Act, what you described would be a felony. Uh, we have always assumed that it really couldn't be, that there were constitutional guardrails, and that's never been put to the test. Mm. Um, and and it's, um, in fact, it was expressly left open as a possibility uh, in the famous Pentagon Papers case where the Supreme Court said that publication could not be enjoined. Mm-hmm. They said it couldn't be enjoined, but they left open the possibility that even a publisher could be prosecuted somewhere down the mm. line. So that's a precedent that will be set at some point during the prosecution of Assange or on appeal from a conviction, should we uh, cross that road? I hope we never do. Um, but but I can't answer as simply as I could have a few years ago that what you described to me would not be a violation. What what changed, and, it, and it's sort of a sidebar to, to uh, where I wanted to go here, but what, what changed between the Obama administration's decision uh, to not bring charges against Assange and the uh, charges that are now being brought? Do we have, uh, did th- any circumstances actually change? We, we don't know uh, enough to answer that question definitively, okay. but I think the way that I would answer it is this. We think about administrations as unitary entities, but they aren't. So during the Obama administration, I have no doubt that there were many who were calling for the prosecution of Assange. Uh-huh. Maybe they were in the FBI. Maybe they were in the Virginia prosecutor's office. Uh, but at the end of the day, the senior leadership of the Justice Department said, no, this precedent would be too problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had you know, Jeff Sessions uh, come in, who had been calling for prosecution of uh, of newspapers mm-hmm. for decades uh, mm-hmm. for publishing secrets. And that's really all it took was uh, a change at the top of the Justice Department to go from um, we shouldn't do this to um, here's the green light, let's go for it. But I'm sure that many of the same career officials mm-hmm. in both the FBI and in the Eastern District of Virginia Prosecutor's Office uh, had been advocating for it under both administrations. Gotcha. Now, uh, as noted, uh, Rand Paul suggests the uh, Espionage Act should be scrapped altogether, though there does seem to be some need, obviously, to to protect, you know, bona fide national security information or classified documents from theft and misuse by actual 
enemies of the U.S. government? No. Uh, how would uh, such national security secrets be protected if the espionage was simply repealed, as uh, Senator Paul is calling for? So it's not the only law that covers actual espionage mm-hmm. or protects actual secrets. Uh, if you'll remember, during the Bush administration, the special prosecutor that looked into the uh, the Valerie Plain leaks uh, mm-hmm. and the law that was at the center of that was a law that makes it a crime to reveal the identity of an undercover source. Uh, to me, that is the most important classified information, uh, information the release of which would actually put a human being into danger, whether mm-hmm. that person works in the intelligence community overseas or more likely um, is a source mm-hmm. uh, for our intelligence assets um, overseas. Beyond that, um, and I, I, I think it does need to be said here, uh, and, and I think people who listen to your show should remember this. Most information that's classified should not be. Mm. And the estimates, even from insiders, uh, people who have worked in the national security space, mm-hmm. are that um, from 50 to 90 percent of the information that's classified really should not be classified. And you'll remember that during the kerfuffle around Secretary Clinton's uh, email Emails. server, yeah. President Obama said... There's classified information, and there's classified information <laughs> right. in his tone, saying, like, look, I look at these documents all the time, and effectively saying most of it really doesn't need to be classified. It's classified through bureaucratic laziness and incentives, and very often, in my experience, it's classified to cover up government wrongdoing and to prevent embarrassment and accountability. So I don't hear a number like 150, 300, 700, and get mm-hmm. impressed. Well, uh, and that's why I've been keeping my powder dry. Well, here. fair enough, yeah. fair enough. But I mean, I think no matter whether we overclassify or not, and I think there's little debate that we do. Uh, there are still national security secrets that ultimately yeah. must be kept that way, if only to, as you know, you know, protect sources and, and methods Correct. and so forth. I uh, think it's a pretty narrow category of uh-huh. information, but I would be absolutely one of the first to admit that that category exists. Mm-hmm. And saying that the that much information is overclassified doesn't say, therefore, it's justified for a president to go rogue and stuff it all in his suitcase and then put it in his basement behind a padlock. <laughs> uh, you can acknowledge these two things at the same time. Okay. That much of the classification system um, is, uh, in my view, illegitimate, mm-hmm. and that there's no good justification for what Trump did here. But what I was going to say about keeping my powder dry is, yeah. to me... The most important facts that will help us assess the situation have still not been released. Um, we still don't have authoritative information about just what was in those documents mm-hmm. so that we can decide for ourselves whether justified or not <laughs> uh, that Trump had it, and certainly it's not. Uh, it was worth uh, sending a team of FBI agents into the president's home, mm-hmm. uh, and we still don't know why um, and this is related, the, the government was so concerned um, about those documents. Now, certainly, if the government had reason to believe that Trump's theft of those documents and his holding on to them were related to something like obstruction of justice, that mm-hmm. these were documents that were related to investigations into him, uh, uh, to me, that puts this in a completely different category than just um, a, a, a sort of knee-jerk um, action that these are marked classified. He doesn't have a right to do it. Therefore, we should go and get them. Well, he does, and, and again, I think you can you can separate the justification for the raid mm-hmm. from the from the wisdom 
of the raid. Well, I mean, the Justice Department does in the warrant, they they refer to obstruction uh, as yeah. one of the reasons that they had to. And, you know, to be fair, uh, uh, Ben... They cite, they cite yeah. a statute that covers obstruction. Right. Right? So, so I, again, and I, I am very open to the possibility that when we find out why they cited that statute, uh-huh. I, I will be a full-throated advocate of what they did <laughs> in this case. I'm just saying I don't have the information yet to be that full-throated advocate. Well, uh, let me, let me uh, setting aside for a moment the Espionage Act, if you or I had stolen government documents, for good reason or bad, but we stole them, we had them, uh, we acknowledged having them. Do you think you or I would be given a year and a half of various negotiations and then subpoenas and then meetings with the DOJ and then we'd sign something that said, oh, that's it, we gave them all back? Uh, I, I mean, you or I would have been raided by the FBI months and months ago and not in the polite way that the FBI apparently did it at Mar-a-Lago. There's no question that's true. Um, at the same time, um, uh, there it stands a decent chance that Trump will be the candidate who is running against the current president mm-hmm. uh, for president in 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, the argument that he should be treated exactly like every other citizen is not persuasive to me. Mm. Uh, again, it could be completely legally justified and still politically unwise. If what we're really thinking about is um, uh, you know, legitimacy, how is the country going to view this? Mm-hmm. It matters what those documents were. The fact that they were marked classified is a key fact. I still want to know what was in them. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe that Jamil Jaffer is correct when he says that the concerns that the ACLU and others have raised about the Espionage Act mm-hmm. are not implicated here, right? Um, we've been saying you shouldn't equate two categories, spies and whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. What we have here is a third category, right? Unless there's uh, evidence that develops that Trump was actually taking these documents to to share them with a foreign power. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that suggested yet. We're talking about a third category. I'll suggest it, Ben, but go ahead. It's possible. It's possible. I'm just saying that with Trump, I hope we've learned by now that sometimes the stupidest explanation (laughs) is more accurate than the most nefarious. And I think that, that too many of us have experienced too many times this feeling that the walls are finally closing in uh-huh. uh, on him, only to have that not happen. And I do think that people should take a deep breath in this situation. Um, I hope that there's enough information in the redacted affidavit in support of the search warrant that uh-huh. we can answer some of the questions that we're talking about here right now. Uh, but, uh, but I still have... Some nagging doubts uh, about whether um, uh, you know what happened here was the only course that the government could have taken. Fair enough. Uh, let the nags continue until they uh, finally release, if they release, anything from that affidavit. The DOJ has argued, of course, that releasing any of it would compromise an ongoing investigation. Of course, they say that a lot about a lot of stuff. Uh, So we will see what, if anything, ends up getting released. And uh, Ben Weisner, hopefully you'll come on and uh, join us to discuss it when it does, because 
man oh man uh yeah. an interesting case to say the least you're involved Fair with enough. a lot of them it seems uh ben weisner is the director of the american civil liberty union's speech privacy and technology project you can of course follow all of their work and support their work at aclu.org and on the twitters at aclu ben weisner really appreciates joining us today i look forward to the next time my friend take good care thanks thank you all right, quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. <laughs> yep. That's right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of the broadcast. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Some breaking news during the break. Uh, According to AP sources, President Biden is set to announce a $10,000 federal student loan cancellation for many uh, and extending the repayment pause for those loans. We've heard about that for months and months and months. Many of the progressive have been trying to uh, get the President uh, Biden to forgive even more than $10,000, all student loans, federal student loans. Now, it uh, does look like, according to AP sources, that on Wednesday, President Biden is going to do so, up to $10,000, and I believe it will be for a limited for people who uh, make a below a certain income. Cap, an income cap, yes. Before we get to our Green News report, very quickly, Desi Doyen, uh, Democrats, this is an article. I haven't gotten to read this. I've wanted to, but I sort of know what it's about. Hoping you can explain it in about 30 seconds. I will try. From the New York Times, Democrats designed the climate law to be a game changer. Here's how this in reference to the Inflation Reduction Act and the uh, some 400 billion dollars that are going towards uh, climate change. How did they design it to be a game changer, Desi Doyen? Well, for the first time ever, the Inflation Reduction Act, Democrats put in there the definition that legally defines greenhouse gases as pollution, which means that it explicitly tells the EPA to regulate it. So that's very useful in court. And, um, of course, it will be challenged, but it is much harder for the Supreme Court to argue like they did in West Virginia EPA earlier this year. They said, well, Congress didn't really explicitly tell the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Therefore, because what the EPA was told to do by the Clean Air Act was regulate uh, pollution that right. can harm uh, people and so forth. And uh, the and argument... even though the yeah. EPA came out with an endangerment finding saying explicitly that, yes, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change are pollution and that they harm do human endanger health, human that health. they do yeah. endanger human health, the Supreme Court, the right-wing supermajority on the Supreme Court said that still wasn't explicit enough, so Democrats slipped that into the bill and made it 
explicit. And it is explicit. It is the law, and it could make a lot of difference for a lot of years. A little piece of that law that we haven't talked about that few have noticed, but I think is decidedly good news. Yes. For decidedly bad news, let's turn now <laughs> to Desi Doyen and our latest Green News Report. I'm glad you're okay. What was that like for you? I thought I was dying. I thought I was going to die. Dallas-Fort Worth, latest U.S. city hammered by record rain and floods. The authorities have been ordering power rationing for factories and supply chains. China rationing energy supplies due to record heat and drought. Plus, bad news and good about PFAS Forever Chemicals. All of that bad news and good straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's pretty clear this planet is not doing great. The level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is now higher than ever in human history. And a recent UN Commission climate report was called an atlas of human suffering, which coincidentally is also the slogan for Craigslist. Also coincidentally, for your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, well... Here we go again. Yes, Dallas-Fort Worth is the latest U.S. city to get hammered by record rainfall. On Monday, some areas were hit with 15 inches, that's three months' worth of rain, in just hours, causing flash flooding that inundated highways and roads. At least one person is confirmed dead in the flooding, and the region has been in exceptional drought for months, underscoring that man-made climate change makes extreme weather events much more extreme. This is insane and getting insaner in state after state after state this summer. Yes, this is the fifth one-in-a-thousand-year storm to hit the U.S. in less than a month. Wow. Meanwhile, a new analysis finds that an unprecedented number of U.S. households are financially exposed to flood damages. Last year, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, overhauled the National Flood Insurance Program to make premiums more accurately reflect the actual flood risk of a property Uh as climate change and development intensify flood damage. Oh boy. But E&E News reports that since that change, more than 400,000 U.S. homeowners instead simply dropped flood insurance due to the higher prices, putting an unprecedented number of U.S. households at much higher risk of financial disaster from a flood. Great timing right before, what, five one-in-a-thousand-year floods this summer? And as hurricane season is getting underway. Oh man. Russia is spiking global natural gas prices again. Gas prices in Europe closed at a new record high after Russia announced it will shut down a critical pipeline exporting natural gas to Europe for three days for maintenance, right as Europe is grappling with energy shortages and racing to store natural gas for winter. Russia has already throttled gas exports to just 20% of normal in retaliation for Europe's support of Ukraine in Russia's brutal invasion. Good news, though. In Germany, solar power hit a new record high this summer and is poised for massive growth. Well, that is good news. China just hit an all-time high overnight temperature of 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Not as good news. That is the low temperature, 94 degrees. It's another gobsmacking record in the unprecedented extreme heat wave with temperatures in the triple digits for more than two months straight. Axios reports that the persistent heat has no parallel in modern record keeping in China and potentially in the world. The heat combined with a severe drought has decimated China's crops 
pipes and dried up rivers, including parts of the Yangtze, cutting output from China's hydroelectric dams. That has forced officials in key industrial hubs to temporarily shut down factories like Toyota, Apple and Intel. Officials have resorted to cloud seeding to make it rain. Chinese economist Don Wang on CNBC warned that the impacts of the persistent heat and drought that are harming China's economy are also radiating out across the rest of the world. We already see slowdown in production in the steel industry and chemical industry and fertilizer industry. And those are very important things when it comes to construction, to agriculture, and also to manufacturing in general. So for all of these years, with all of these Republicans saying we're not going to do anything here because, oh, look, China, they're polluting as much or more than we are. All of this disaster affects everyone, including, yes, us here in the U.S. when it comes to the economy. Yes, indeed it does. But some bad news and good news on PFAS chemicals, a class of chemicals widespread in industrial and consumer applications, nicknamed forever chemicals because they don't break down in the environment and are incredibly costly and difficult to clean up. The bad news, PFAS pollution is far more widespread than previously understood. A new study has found PFAS chemicals in rainwater samples all around the world at levels exceeding Environmental Protection Agency standards for human health. But the good news is that researchers have discovered an easier and cheaper technique to break down PFAS forever chemicals into harmless byproducts. Experts say they are cautiously optimistic, saying the study is the first degradation mechanism they have ever found that, quote, could actually make a difference. Not so forever now, are you, PFAS? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. But nothing lasts forever, so they say. There you go. Thank you very much. See, everything's getting better. What forever chemicals? Never heard of them. Thank you very much, Des. She is, of course, our excellent producer here on the Bradcast. And thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, if you want to click on one of those donate buttons, we wouldn't be against it. Everything we do here is 100% listener supported. So thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to keep us on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at simply the Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. But nothing lasts forever, so they say. The old home place is a classic theme of Americana, expressed in everything from Norman Rockwell paintings to Woody Guthrie's powerful folk lament, Ain't Got No Home in This World Anymore. But for a heart-rending modern-day version of the emotional pull of home, you can't beat the poignant wail of a new song entitled The Low Down Down Home Atherton Rich Man Blues.
Warning, you might need a box of tissues to get through this sad saga. Atherton, California, is a small town of some 7,500 souls who face a dreadful housing crisis. Unlike most situations, though, they are alarmed by a looming threat of too much housing. It seems that a recent California law requires cities to provide some affordable multifamily housing to help cope with a growing statewide shortage of homes, meaning Atherton needs to put in about 350 townhouse units as its share. Townhouses, shriek the locals. This can't be. Unrich people live in townhouses. You see, Atherton is a precious enclave in the heart of the Silicon Valley, where only tech billionaires are allowed. The price of their mansions averages $8 million, with each one secluded on at least an acre of land. So, townhouse people? No way! As one affordable housing advocate put it, Atherton talks about multifamily housing as if it were a Martian invasion. In a letter to the city council, the multi-billionaire Andreessen family wailed that allowing more than one residence per acre, quote, will massively decrease our home values and quality of life. I'm sure you weep for them, so grab a tissue. Yet, some Athertonians are at least trying to find solutions. One suggests that all of the residents' swimming pool cabanas should count toward the town's affordable housing requirements. This is Jim Hightower saying, if that won't make you cry, nothing will. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is brought to you by the Lowdown Happy Hour, live streamed from the Chat and Chew Cafe. Details at HightowerLowdown.org.